rather than in wrath. And we adore him this morning because of his joyful willingness to do what God required of humanity for us. Because we could never do this for ourselves and would never do this for ourselves, left to ourselves. Let me pray and we'll begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it tells us about us so that what it tells us about you is more clear. God, I ask this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would see our own desperation, our own bankruptcy spiritually, how much we need you, Father, and how much you've given to us in Christ who is fully sufficient. God, make it plain to me as I preach. Watch over my mind and therefore my mouth and watch over the ears of everyone who will hear. I pray and ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why are Christians, why are the people of faith in this world surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses? Is it just this group that is cheering us on? It's, it's much more than that. Witnesses to what? Witnesses, not witnesses to you and me. Chapter 11 gave us the answer. Witnesses to the faithfulness of our God towards those in this world who trust in Him and believe His promises. So to call Christians to faithful endurance here, which is what He's doing In Hebrews 12, God builds a case for why we should endure by proving to us how faithful He has been. We endure to the end by trusting in the faithfulness of our faithful God with all that we have. Who God is for us in His Son is the basis of laying aside every weight. The text describes the cares of this world as things that literally weigh us down. Our faith as Christians can have things hanging on it, pulling us back Towards the ground, towards the earth, financial worries, relationship anxieties, worry about the future, the the course of our own lives, the direction of the country, what will happen to us, what will happen to our loved ones, worries about work, our jobs, our own paths forward, the anxiety of, um, of our faith itself, whether or not it will last as time goes on in the midst of the unknown when trials come. But there's a sense to this call to endure. There's a sense God gives to us in all of this. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, witnesses have a testimony. That's what they do. They testify. The testimony of these witnesses is to the unending, irrevocable faithfulness of God. Since we have that, we should lay aside these extra weights. Just put them down. God has our future in his hands. That's what he's telling us. That's the basis of the Christian not having anxiety. God doesn't command mere virtues. The command that comes in Philippians in those places not to worry, not to be anxious for anything, is based on something objective outside of you and I, the enduring, unstoppable, never-ending faithfulness of God. We are free to let these weights have no effect whatsoever on our faith because of who God is And his word, our identity as God's child is fixed 
in the heavens, believer, it's eternal. No one can snatch us out of his hand, including ourselves. Our names are written down in heaven and he holds us in the palms of his hands. Jesus Christ has you all day long, every day, 25-8. So he doesn't tell us to lay aside the extra weight that pulls us back towards the ground and keeps us from seeing the glory of the one who saves us since you can do it. You notice that? That's not how Jesus argues. That's not what he says to his people. You can do it. No, no, no. He, he doesn't command you to look inside to find the ability to endure. He doesn't say you can do it. He says to us, I did it. I have you. Rest in me. I'll be with you every day of this life. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And when it ends, I'll be standing right there for you, just like I said I would be. So, beloved, lay aside the things that are weighing you down. It's not that the Bible is saying, pretend these things don't exist. Right? Just deny reality. That's not what Jesus calls us to do. He's telling you, he's inviting you into rest. He's saying, look, these things don't have to weigh you down. They're not things that have the ability to keep you from me. So don't think that's what they're doing. That's not what they're doing. Jesus has you and Jesus never fails. Also, he says in verse 1, Lay aside the sin which clings so closely. It's a very interesting thing to say to Christians, to the church, the sin which clings so closely. So, beloved, in our struggle against sin and our flesh and the devil and all the temptations we face and the pull of the world at us, do we really think Jesus is unaware of this or surprised by it or taken off guard by it? Remember this. You and I are surprised to find out we're depraved. Jesus is not. Ever. That's why he died for us. Do we think that because sin clings to us so closely, that Jesus is going to lay us aside? He's going to cut his losses of us. Because regardless of his promise and the sufficiency of what he's done for us and the call to holiness, our sin still clings so closely Beloved, Jesus knows that our sin clings so closely. He knows us. He knows us. Not only does he have us, he knows us. He knows we struggle with sin. He knows that it clings so closely. It holds on to us. But what is the testimony of the cloud of witnesses that surround us? Again, not so much to cheer us on. That's not how they're witnesses. They're not witnesses that are watching. They're witnesses that are testifying. And what is their testimony? That God isn't going anywhere. That's their testimony. Yes, sin clings closely. And the struggle remains. And our flesh wages war against our souls. And it's weighty and burdensome and tiresome and troublesome. And it, our flesh eats away at us every day, every moment. But Jesus Christ clings more closely to you than your sin does. Yes, it clings, but he clings more closely. He doesn't tell us in this struggle, trust in your will, trust in your effort to kill your sin. That's not his instruction. He says, look to my faithfulness for you. Look to what I've accomplished for you. And then the grip of sin loosens. The weight lessens. Oh, how Christians need the gospel. Right? 
since so, right? So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us at the end of verse 1. Why? Why does he say so? How is that little word functioning in this sentence? Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses to the enduring, unending, covenant-loving faithfulness of God, let us set our sights on the prize who is Jesus, plant our feet, and run. Run home. Just like distance and inclines and our body's need for hydration and oxygen threaten to wear us down physically and choke our endurance when we're running, literally, the weight of this world, the clinginess of sin threaten our endurance in our sojourn spiritually with Jesus in this world. But we have a witness in our tailwind, don't we? A witness pushing us on, filling our spiritual lungs with air, soothing the cramps in our spiritual muscles, so to speak, Our God will not abandon us because we slow down. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us because we carry excess weight. Because our sin clings so closely to us, even though he's redeemed us. That's what redemption is for. Jesus knows us and Jesus has us and he is for us and he never fails. So keep running. With eyes perpetually fixed, by the way, on Jesus in verse 2. Why? Right? How is Jesus described in this text? Right? Who is he for us here? In light of how we're commanded to run this race with endurance and remain faithful in order to make it home. Beloved, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Do we realize how masterfully the Spirit has inspired this text to be written? You're called and commanded to faith, and then you're told it has nothing to do with you. We're being called to enduring faithfulness here that is absolutely necessary to reach our eternal home. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that uh, throughout our trials, our sojourn, our exile in this world, we are being guarded, kept by God. Yes, Eternally secure. How? Through faith. Chapters 11 and 12 flow out of the end of chapter 10, where we were admonished to have faith in light of the sufficiency and the supremacy of the work of Jesus for us in chapters 1 through 9. If you want to turn back, let me read chapter 10, verses 37 to 39 to you. This is how the admonition ends here. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith. The author's quoting Habakkuk here. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That comes about by faith is what the text is telling us. Therefore, have faith, endurance. We preserve our souls by enduring in faith. And here in chapter 12, beloved... After that heavy commandment, after giving reason after reason in chapter 11, example after example of the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of sin and loss and sorrow and suffering, and why he can be trusted without fail, that's when we're reminded that the faith in which we're commanded to endure to the end does not originate in us, and we are not responsible nor able to produce it. Why does my faith need a founder if I can found it? Why does it need an author if I can write it? 
And why does it need a finisher and a perfecter if I can complete it? Jesus isn't that as a memorial. He is that functionally for me. The call to endure is not a call to buckle down and try our hardest or we'll lose it all. The call to endure is a call to never take our eyes off of Jesus and who he is for us in the gospel. Look at verse 2 in light of 1037 really down to 12.1. That's how you want to read verse 2. The faith you're commanded to have, Jesus is the founder of it. So he's the author of it, which means he owns all the rights to it. But he also is the perfecter of it. Beloved, do we know, do we grasp, do we savor and adore what that means? Do you want justifiable cause for adoration on December 12th? Jesus produces the faith in me so that I might believe I believe because he authored it in me, yes and amen. But he also is the one who finishes my faith for me and perfects it so that it does not end, does not fail, and will last until I cross the finish line. Do you see what that title tells you and I of him? He's authoring it, he's perfecting it and finishing it. You and I just... Walk in it. He who began this good work in me will see it through to the day of completion. Philippians 1.6 These are promises and our God does not lie. The call over us this morning from the text is not the call to try. It's the call to trust. It is otherworldly. We're commanded to strive for these things, to enter that rest in 4.11. Of Hebrews, beloved, not as the means of obtaining these things. We don't strive to obtain these things. But because we're weighed down by the cares of this world and the sin which clings so closely to us, including the sin of lacking faith, what the believer must strive for, when we hear to strive, is to ask for the grace to, or, or what we need the grace to perform, beloved is to never be deceived into trusting that I have the power necessary to finish and perfect my own faith. That is not what God calls me. He does not call me or us the author and finisher of our faith, the founder or perfecter of it. This is the fight to trust rather than try. That's what the Christian strives for. The work is done. It is finished. Why am I called to strive? Because something is lacking In the sacrifice of Jesus for me? No, because everything in me, remember, in my deadness, doesn't want to rest. And if I'm not resting in Christ, I won't endure. We must strive to rest in Christ, beloved. That's what we strive for. To believe it's finished. To believe the gospel. And according to the Father and His Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, It is this very way we will be conformed to the image of Christ by beholding Jesus. Not just as something to look at, but as something to trust in for what He's accomplished for us. This is God's mean of transforming me, yes, and perfecting my faith. Look at what I've said to you. Look at what I've promised you. It's all yes and amen in this person, Jesus Christ, for you, that has you, that knows you, that carries you. There's nothing we're less likely 
or inclined to do in our own flesh or by our own willingness than to rest in Christ and believe the gospel. There is nothing less instinctive to a human being. Nothing that a human being resists more than the command of Christ in the gospel to come to him and rest. But we do have a willing Savior. We do have one whose will was fixed on God from start to finish. We have one who was so motivated by God's promise that he endured to the end for us. Everything Jesus was doing, he was doing for us. If you want to know the righteousness that God requires, you look to Christ and realize that this is what he wanted out of humanity. You see how far away we are from Jesus? Right? Beloved, anybody can be morally upstanding. Nobody can be righteous as God requires. Nobody. Or Jesus died for nothing. We have one who trusted God's word so much that he believed whatever he was faced with in the world, whatever the world held out for him, it would never be better than what God had promised. He never once was deceived by the world. We need one who trusts God so much that he would endure even in and through the worst suffering imaginable all of his life and then his very own death itself because his confidence and faith in God were absolutely flawless. It doesn't mean he didn't struggle as the God-man. We see him in the garden struggling, blood vessels bursting because he's under so much anxiety and stress that he's sweating blood, right? He, but beloved, he endured that Jesus isn't pretending in the garden. That's not, Jesus didn't pretend to be righteous for you and me. He did what you and I do not, cannot, will not do. That's the righteousness I need Jesus to perform for me, for God to accept me. I can get people to accept me by being polite, by not stealing, by not having an affair on my wife. There are people that hate God that pull this off every day. And I'm not saying those things aren't good and kind and Right. They are, but they aren't the righteousness. They aren't the fullness of the righteousness God requires. Christians aren't the one who, the ones who brag for being good. We're the ones who say, none of us understand how good we're supposed to be. We need a savior. I need what Jesus did to be applied to my account. Right. I could not lie when I was too scared of my dad to try to pull it off. I can be moral all the time. It, it, beloved, I need Jesus doing for me all the things I cannot do, including the desire to do them. Because God wants that. We, we say it like it's, uh, like there was a, a rapper a couple years ago, he, he, Tupac Shakur. I'm sure he has a lot of, a lot of big following here, Tupac. He has tattooed on his stomach. He, he, he died. He has tattooed on his stomach. Only God can judge me. Yeah, that's not good news. Right? We, we, we say, I don't have to worry about the outside because God looks at the heart. Yeah, he does. And the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can understand it? That's what he sees. Beloved, it would be nice if God couldn't see the inside. 
right? But he does. And he can't. I need Jesus to cover the fact that I can't choose God according to his word. I need him to choose God for me also. I need him to obey that command to, re- to, to believe also. I need it. We need one who looked to God and saw in him enough to lay aside every weight. I need a Savior who believes, Hebrews 12, 1. That's God's word. It's his will for you and I. I need one who not only saw enough in God to lay aside every weight, but to lay aside every sin, no matter how much he was tempted. And again, Jesus isn't resisting temptation like it, like it's fake or magic. If, if I, I think I've shared that maybe this example on maybe a Wednesday night, but if you have a bridge that for years and years and years, say 200 years, holds up under weight, and a bridge who for one year holds up under weight and then collapses... Which one of those two bridges knows more about holding up under weight? Right? Jesus is 33, 34 year life for me, resisting temptation and never sinning, is not proof that it was a joke. It's proof that he holds fast. He knows something about resisting sin that I can't touch, beloved. I need him to do that for me also. Because often, more often than not, I hate to say when I am tempted, I sin. Never once, never once did he sin. And again, it's not like the temptations weren't real. I mean, what you see Satan tempting Jesus to do is only relative to Jesus when he goes out into the wilderness. Turn these stones into bread. Satan isn't tempting you and I to do that. Jesus held up under the hardest the heaviest, the longest lasting of temptations, and never gave in. He held fast. I need the Savior to do that for me. Hold fast in all the temptations. Because I don't hold fast in them. I crumble. We need the greatest witness to the faithfulness of God and His promises who ever lived surrounding us. And He does. On every side with shouts and songs of deliverance, beloved. We need the one that God calls the founder and perfecter of our faith. Just think about what that means. God is looking at the perfecter when it comes to me and my faith. In verse 2, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Right? The joy that would come later. Before him, not that he had in that moment, but what would come, what was laying out in front of him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, not letting the shame determine what he would do, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus accomplished what Adam was created to do. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. How did Jesus endure with the weight of the whole world's sin hanging on his shoulders as he hung on the cross? How did Jesus keep going when he was tempted over and over again to give in, to save himself? How did Jesus lay aside the cares and burdens of this world? How did he literally resist sin to the death 
So that when he gave up his life on the cross, it was that fragrant offering to God from humanity of a perfectly sinless and actively righteous life of obedience. How did Jesus keep loving and keep serving and keep giving and teaching and healing when he knew what was coming? How did he press on when he walked literally every moment of his earthly life under the shadow of death? You and I walk in and out of that valley, not Jesus. The star of Bethlehem is also casting a shadow on him. It's joy for you and I. It's the clock beginning a countdown for Jesus. Beloved, Jesus conquered in every way. Every way. He endured in every place where you and I are not only tempted to give in, but do give in. He didn't let the shame that was going to be heaped on him in this world overshadow the approval he would gain from his father. Because he decided the joy he would have in God's presence for finishing the race and completing the task God had given him to do and that he had willingly accepted or were not here was far better than anything he would gain by not doing it. That's why you and I sin. That's precisely where you and I sin because we believe in a moment that that thing, that whatever it is, holds out for us something that God cannot give us. So all sin is idolatry. It's the worst sin you can do. All of it. It's choosing something to worship and put your hope in other than God. It's saying something about God's value versus this thing. And when you start thinking, you mean that I choose my uh, temper over God's infinite value when I lose it? Yes. Yes. So surely, no, beloved, a bite of fruit and a husband who wasn't protecting his wife threw the world into death. We have no sense of how horrible sin is. We're still thinking like there's a thing called white lies. Right? That, that lying about whether or not you took a cookie is not the same as lying about your taxes. Well, sure. But then when you realize that it's God who judges, the conversation changes. He did everything He did for the glory of the Father, which is how you and I should live. And beloved, we don't. He did everything that He did because He believed that the joy He would have with His Father was better than any joy He could get for a few moments by not going the way of the cross. You and I, left to our own, will not choose the cross ever. We, we In the garden, you have the proof of how humanity will respond to the God who commands us to live a certain way. He was willing to do all this because Jesus believes with all that He is that the best place in all the universe is at the right hand of the throne of God. Just as we hear Him praying through David in Psalm 1611 to His God and Father, You make known to me the path of life. In Your presence there is fullness of joy. At Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we're finding that Jesus saw that and said, I will endure the cross because of what's on the other side of it. You and I often can't see the other side. 
Jesus said, I want to be there. I want to be in his presence. I want to be at his right hand. That's where there's pleasure forevermore. That's where the fullness of joy is. We don't even know what that is. The fullness of joy. We always think we're going to find it, don't we? We always think we're going to find it. If we just do what we want to do, that's when, if I don't do what I want to do, I won't have the fullness of joy. My joy will be limited. Do you realize how much we need Jesus? And then, in a stroke of grace so indescribably amazing, he brings us there with him as his dearly beloved bride forever. Beloved, 12.2 means that the founder and perfecter of our faith is seated in the place of the highest authority in the cosmos. So our salvation is fixed and nothing can threaten it. What if something happens to the founder and perfecter of my faith? Oh, they killed him. But God raised him from the dead. And as we speak, he is seated, not standing, wringing his hands in anxiety. Seated at the right hand of God the Father. My name on his hands. That's why Tony Romano will be saved. Because the highest place of authority in the universe is where my salvation is kept. No one can steal it. It is Jesus who died. It is God who justifies. So let the devil accuse. Let someone bring up your record and your sins and your past every time you tell them, no, 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 Jesus has forgiven me. Let the books be opened and everything we've ever done and said and thought be read out loud before the universe. Will it be enough to overcome the perfecting power and the cry of Jesus, my Savior, from the cross? It is finished. No. As the list goes on and on and on, the louder voice will be, it is finished, though, for me, for you, for all who believe. Jesus knows me. Jesus has me. He loves us. His blood covers us. His righteousness justifies us. He was willing because what weighs us down and the sin that clings so closely makes us unwilling. Jesus came to do not just what we couldn't do, but what we didn't want to do. And I am saved from both of those things. So Jesus did it all for us. Even our faith, even our willingness that we don't naturally possess. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. The Christmas story is all about a willing Savior born to rescue unwilling people from themselves because there's no other way but for God to come and do it Himself. The call of the Gospel is to lay aside everything that would keep you tied down here. Everything that would make you think the fullness of joy could be found elsewhere. Apart from the presence of God. And to not only want to be in His presence, not only do we need that, but to get to His presence and not be obliterated, we will need a Savior. A willing one. Because again, God did not want our robotic allegiance. So rather than force, He sent a Son to do for us what we would not do left to ourselves. He sent a son to choose what I would not and could not so that God would be the desire of nations.
Jesus endured because he wanted to. Because for him, the joy of the Father's presence outweighed everything else. Jesus worshipped God perfectly. He valued God perfectly. Jesus is what that looks like. So my call is not to try to mimic it. My call is to rest in it and let the Spirit do the work of conforming me to a carbon copy of Him. He believed the world was filled with broken cisterns and that God was the fountain of living water. So he picked God. To make it a very earthy example, and I've probably used this before, Jesus, it's, it's, when, when you read this, Jesus didn't forego steak like to have a hamburger, right? That's not what this is. That's not what God and life in Christ is, the lesser thing, right? Right. The, the, the thing we're supposed to do and what we really want to do is out there, right? That, it's, it's like the Christian life is not saying no to steak and yes to the lesser, you know, bar S hot dog. That, that's, that's not what the Christian life is. What I really want, what's really fun, what's really good, what really brings joy is out there, but I need to do what's right. Do, do we even realize how much we're degrading God when we say that? We say, think like that. That the, the good life is really out there, but I need to do what's right. As though what's right isn't the epitome of joy in His presence. The joy of heaven, the joy of eternity in the Father's presence is more than enough to satisfy our souls. We don't even know what we're talking about here. We just know it's really, really good. And because of Jesus, one day this won't just be an idea to us that we can't even really grasp it will be our eternal, unbroken, unending, uninterrupted reality. This is Jesus for us. This is what he's done for us. And we need all of it. The entire story of redemption proclaimed to us in the gospel hinges on one thing. The eternal willingness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Without that, we are without God and we are without hope in this world. We would be left to our free wills, which the Bible is very clear. We'll never want to choose God's joy over what we think brings joy. I need saved from my will as much as I do from my actions. So, beloved, stop this morning for a few moments and celebrate the willingness of Jesus to be our Savior. Come to Him. Embrace Him as your own. For when we aren't, He is. Adore Him. Because He's worthy of adoration. It makes sense to adore Him. He's done it all. He is for you. He will keep you. Repent of your sins. Ask God for forgiveness. Come to Him. Trust in His Son. You say, I thought you said I couldn't do that. You you can't. So if you're desiring to do it right now, Jesus is on your trail. And I have news for you. If you resist Him this morning and He wants you, He's going to catch you. You might as well come. For the joy that was set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. He did everything, beloved. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. Adore Him. 